0: Hello and welcome to Axlander, a podcast about and for all of you who have left their home to find a new one abroad. Great. So my today's guest is Mr. Vladimir Zuro. I'm just going to ask him if he could introduce himself. And he is joining us live from New York City. So hello, Vladimir. How are you today?
1: Hello. I'm doing good. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very pleased to be able to talk to you and, and to your listeners.
0: Yeah. Likewise, yes, uh, I'm very, very honored to have you on Xlender. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you again. Uh, well, who am I? I used to work for a criminal police department in Prague on the violent crime, uh, homicide, and other violent crime. And in um, in 1993, I joined the National Central Bureau, National Central Bureau of Interpol,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I spent a couple of years. And then. Uh, I was given an opportunity to go to uh, war in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, for the United Nations Protection Force. I was seconded for one year, working in Sarajevo at the time, which was under siege. And it was a true war experience. And because I learned something that was kind of special because of being in the war, when they opened the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, I applied for the job there as an investigator and I was accepted and I was working for almost 10 years in the Office of the Prosecutor of the International War Crimes Tribunal, investigating crimes committed by Serbs on non-Serbs in Croatia and in Western Bosnia. And then after that, I, I joined the United Nations with the Office of the Internal Oversight Services I applied for the job in New York, but the bureaucracy moved the position to Vienna. So I got the job, but not in New York, but in Vienna. So I spent three years working in Vienna, which I love the city. It's very pretty, but I wanted to be in New York. So I used the opportunities for transfer. So as soon as I could get transferred, I got transferred to New York and i am been here for 13 plus years.
0: So 13, 13 years, that's how long you've been living there. Yes, I'm New technically a York
1: New Yorker. Antarctica, you're a new yorker, new yorker. okay but, do
0: you do you feel like from, it
1: i love this place <laughs> i love new york city i will eventually return back home to prague which is my home mm-hmm. but uh, i love the city you know it's everything what i need for my life is in new york city it's very cultural very diverse and um, you know from opera to ballet to ice hockey you know, okay. to good food and and uh, and a statue of liberty and just all of these things that i love
0: that is lovely so your story goes way back to the 90s and your background uh, we're going to talk about it a bit later because that is uh, something very special but also very emotional i would say and also quite sad um uh, for what you experienced and what you witnessed and you also wrote a book about it um war crime investigator or the investigator and um, but let's start you know on a bit of a positive note so you're based in New York back in the 90s could you picture yourself like you come from from Czechia right like the former Czechoslovakia from Prague um, could you picture yourself then that you know in 20 years onwards you will be living in New York City the very special place for people from our let's say part of the world at that time was that something that you could picture or did you always know that that you want to move
1: no it was impossible even to think about it it's like you know landing on the moon right you know as a a kid you know you you watch americans landing on the moon uh, and you think i would like to be an astronaut and land on the moon but it's impossible you know at the time when i was young with the iron curtain you know by the borders it was impossible simple as that you know it was difficult to go to eastern germany or to Hungary, not talking about to go to Western Germany and not, you know, going go to, to the United States was impossible. But the things changed. And uh, I'll tell you what was my, my first experience when I was, for the first time, coming to, to New York, which was actually the first place I visited in the United States. You know, my wife was ill at the time, and, uh, and she recovered from that. So it was a trip that we make, you know, to cheer up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So so it was February. It was cold because New York, you know, is in winter. is cold, and so so we came to New York, and as anybody else from my generation that came to New York with open mouth, looking at the skyscrapers, and uh, we made a trip to the Statue of Liberty,
2: mm-hmm. right,
1: which was for us a symbol of freedom.
0: Yeah, especially those days, right. And as yes. you said, your generation, still, yeah,
1: still for me, for mm-hmm. me, still mm-hmm. a big symbol. So we, so we took the ferry and went to, to the Statue of Liberty. And we thought it was much smaller than we thought it would be. You know, from the movies, you see it kind of much bigger. Yeah. And then, and then we were getting to it and it looks smaller than we thought it was. But I remember got,
0: that too. Yeah, it was pretty small.
1: <laughs> because of the skyline of the Manhattan, which is huge. So, you know, it's, a, it's just a matter of comparison. So when we got off the, the ferry and, and we walked to it, you know I had a tears in my eyes. You know I was already a mature man, and it was so strong experience for me at the time, and I still have a very soft spot for Statue of Liberty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But other almost impossible experience was just imagine I was coming from this communist world,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and while I was working for while I was working for uh, the ICTY, it took me to one of those. Trips, it took me to Washington DC and uh, my former colleague from the ICTY Glenn Williamson became the US ambassador for the war crimes issue and he invited us to the White House mm-hmm. and so my daughter and myself were invited to the White House and I was standing in the Oval Office just imagine that you know I couldn't yeah. go to Western Germany
0: yeah yeah
1: you know to buy uh, uh, T-Wars you know mm-hmm. and then Several years later, I was standing in the Oval Office of the White House. I was like, wow.
0: How the world <laughs> changed. Yeah.
1: yeah. Exactly. And so these like were the the, mo- the strongest so experiences of my with the coming to the US. But it was still, I was still living in Holland at the time. Mm-hmm. And I had no clue that I would be able to live in New York City,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: by then, it was my goal, right?
0: It was from already time, your goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, from the time of doing this. You know, communist times where it was impossible. It was just one of those things so you see in you know, the movies and, and you say, well, if I can they, one day go there as a tourist, while I was living and working in the Hague, the priority changed and I really wanted to come and do work in New York City for the United Nations. And uh, and the reason for that, you know, Vienna was a good thing. You know, uh, as I said, I love Vienna. It's a beautiful city. But the headquarters of the UN is here in New York. Mm. And in any, any sort of big company that you work, you know, if you want to achieve something. You need to achieve it at the headquarters. So my goal was to to move from Vienna as quickly as possible to get to the headquarters here. And then it took me three years,
2: mm-hmm. and then
1: uh, then I got here, and then I made my career in the you know living as well, and career in New York.
0: Mm-hmm. So you said that it's something very close to your heart. Has New York changed? How has it changed then? Because of Course, the, the transition is normal for every place, but is it the same New York that you visited in the 90s today?
1: Uh, yes that would and be no. interesting. Yeah, yes, and no, it's still multicultural. Mm-hmm. That's that's a beauty on it. It's so ethnically multicultural, you know. I think that that's actually a benefit of unless you are xenophobic or something, but you know, it's a very beneficial. For the city to be multicultural, not two, not two, because Mm -hmm. the two can actually create a conflict, you know, black and white or whatever you want to. But this is so multicultural, this area, you know, from Asians, you know, to to Africans, you know, to Europeans, and within those groups and different nationalities and and religious. So it's like a melting pot. And I think this actually keeps the spirit of the city, Mm -hmm. regardless of the circumstances. I think the first big change was after September eleven of course because the security was tightened in the city and then it helped to move the crime out of the streets mm-hmm. you know when we got here it was very safe you know, when we moved to new york it was a very safe place
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: was safe until very recently and what uh, happened
0: then because new york also was struggling with coronavirus and with the yeah, measures and all that i mean is yeah. is that part of it
1: Without going just out of
0: curiosity, yeah, yeah, no, let's stay. Without
1: going to the, I cannot talk about politics. No, no, um,
0: I, I don't want to talk about politics either.
1: It's just because of my employment with the United Nations. I'm not allowed to to discuss any politics. Sure, sure. But uh, the coronavirus brought a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. into the, into the city. Everything shut down from the big companies in, the, in Manhattan, you know, to the small shops in the back street. In contrast to Czech Republic, for example, or most of the Europe, they shut down the city on the 13th of March, 2020. And mm-hmm. until October, the restaurants were not open. And when they opened in October, only 25%. And they shut them down again, I think in December. They opened them yesterday, 25%. And then all That's those hard, big companies, yeah. the big companies that they most people work from home. I work from home mm-hmm. since 20th of March. So there's a huge impact, economical impact on a city, even for the people who are sort of well-off as mm-hmm. an impact. Just imagine for the people who are not so well-off. Yes. So there's more homeless people, you know, more people who struggle day by day, which of course brings the crime back to the city. It's not as it was in the 1970s. Everybody talks about, you know, like a Robin Hood time in, in New York where people were being shot in the streets. It's not as bad that... But it's different than than like two years ago mm-hmm. when the city was really safe. So one has to be more careful about it. But this, but you still feel this, the spirit of the city. It's still buzzing, you know. I look out the window at one in the morning and you see on the FDR, you know, the cars are going back and forth. And, you know, it, it's not like that it sleeps. It's just not that vibrant. Mm-hmm. And probably the most visible sign of that is uh, Times Square. Because at Times Square, there was uh, millions of tourists. You know, every year... 40 million foreigners came to New York City for Broadway shows, opera, or drinking, or partying, or, or whatever. And then it's closed. So there's a much less people, you know, in those touristy areas that, you know, everybody goes to. You go to Times Square and the red staircase, you go there now, there's a 10, 15 people there. You know, last year, you know, even in February last year, there were hundreds of thousands of people and they were fighting to get on the stairs to take a selfie. There's a difference, you know, what it used to be and what it is now, but it's still New York City, capital of the universe. I'm biased.
0: (laughs) Oh, you're allowed to be a bit biased. That's okay. Um, But you've mentioned that you would like to eventually return to your home country. You'd like to go back to Prague, Czechia
1: when my job ends here
0: Does, is it is it then that you miss your home country or you miss certain things what motivates no, be, you to go back then not to stay let's say and settle in the US or in, in New York if i may be that nosy
1: <laughs> no no it's a, it's a good question uh having diplomatic status helped me to travel you know without the restrictions that's a good thing on it but uh, all right okay. but back back to, back to back to reality i'm home in prague even though mm-hmm. I wasn't born, I'm not born in Prague. I was born so in Kladno. In Kladno. Clad- okay. yeah.
2: mm-hmm. And
1: I, I spent my childhood in Bustyhrad, which is the small town, you know, close to, it's somewhere between Kladno and Praha. So this is my childhood. And But my adult life, I live in Prague and then abroad. So I'm, I am I can count myself not only as a New York, but also as a typical expat. Mm-hmm. I'm living 25 years of my life abroad. Because you talk to the expats, you probably hear that more than once. When you go home, to your home place, you feel like you're not home there anymore.
0: Yeah, you feel like because a foreigner. You,
1: yes, you feel, you, know, you actually look at your home place with the eyes of a tourist, which is a terrible feeling. You know, I, I come to Prague, I love the place. It takes me like a week to, to adjust myself into being from there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's not because it's better or, or not good or, or, or great. Mm-hmm. It's just different, you know, because my life is here and for 25 years in a different part of the world than my hometown. So um, it's not that easy. And also you you lose your connections. I, I come to see friends and then we, we talk about something and then I cannot talk about what I do. And not because the UN would not allow me to talk about it. It's one thing. But even in general terms, people don't know what I do. And uh, you see it in a Minutes two five, you see they lose interest in it because it's so strange for them. So what I do? So it's 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 not easy to go back where you come from. There's a saying that you don't step in the same river twice. In sub, several years, I'll be trying to get back to Vltava.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. You no,
1: know, that's not literally, but to, to step into the same Vltava that I left, you know, 30 years ago. It's yeah. a different river. And, it um, is. So, um, but I will go back. You know and I will be traveling to the US as a tourist I will switch it because I just can't I don't think I can live you know without New York City
2: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: indefinitely so this will be my plan to, to come back here and also the west of the US which I really like uh, you know the parks and other you know beautiful places
2: mm-hmm. but
1: I will I will go back home yes I yeah. could stay here technically I could stay here technically of
0: course yeah yeah, yeah I
1: could and uh, I think the time probably would come by then
0: well, home is where your heart is um lots of our audience and and my listeners and people who are experts who, who are in very similar positions um, in various, various jobs, even in diplomatic um, jobs. Yeah, they say eventually they've had two hearts and they don't know sometimes where to place it. Mm -hmm. I would say like I am a double citizen. So I'm a Czech and a Swiss citizen and my family is here, like my own family is here and my parents and my sister. So this very sort of small immediate family is then back in Brno, where I come from.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, yeah, I also sometimes feel like a foreigner. And yeah, exactly <laughs> what you what you described. I think that many, many listeners who are listening to, to us now and who are listening to Axelander anyway, I mean, they would definitely agree. And this is one of the things, it's just so hard to define home because it can really be both. And for you at the moment, it is New York City, yes. as you said, right?
1: Yes, it's my home now, right. for sure. I, f- I feel, you know, the Czech Republic is my my home. I was born there and I lived my childhood there. Professionally, mm-hmm. it is not my home. You know, mm-hmm. I-, I lived longer and working longer
2: mm-hmm.
1: outside of the Czech Republic than inside. Mm-hmm. So uh, professionally, I'm foreigner for the Czech Republic, but uh, it's my home. As simple mm-hmm. as that. I, I love mm-hmm. the country. It's beautiful all the little things and the skirmishes that uh, that people there think they are the greatest problems in the world, but they are not. I've seen the problems of the world, you know, mm-hmm. because of my job. These are not the ones there, you know, right. these are the little, you know, storms in the, in the teapot. Important, of course, you know, for the people, but, but they are not the, the world's problems. You know, people are living very nicely in the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. you know, in contrast, to the history, I think this is the best time.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: that that mm-hmm. with all the little problems that we have to resolve, but the problems are everywhere. Of course. But on but on lighter note, for a Swiss citizen, you speak nice British English. Where did you get it?
2: <laughs>
0: i don't know i mean i think my accent is just from everywhere i think uh british people will ask me whether i was from south africa Mm -hmm. i've been asked whether i was uh from australia which i Mm -hmm. you know i've never even been to australia i would like to go but um no i think it's just a mixture of my sort of background and um my school when i was taught by native speakers i was living in the uk Uh um for some time but um and yeah and here in switzerland i mean i do speak german i kind of speak swiss german but i'm a bit embarrassed you know to speak it in front of the swiss so i kind of speak high german but um it's also that as an expat you're a part of the international community so i was mm-hmm. working for british companies and um yeah and so when i was teaching english so
1: one can one can hear that. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: well, thank you very much. I mean, I don't side, but I know I know that I don't sound particularly Czech, though. And that's one part of it. And that's why sometimes I think this was also something that I was struggling with, because as soon as I, you know, I mean, when I was talking to someone, let's say in Switzerland, this is nothing against the Swiss, but when I was talking to someone or when I was applying for a job or so, so everybody's like, oh, okay. And, you know, the international community speak very good English. And suddenly when I revealed where I was from, that I was not technically a native speaker, you know, my surname was rather, it was a Slavic surname. Mm-hmm. So not really... Um, you know, from the anglophone world, then uh, people would are like, oh, what we thought you were kind of like Irish or somewhere. Oh, and um, well, I wouldn't say that there was any prejudice or there was any like systemic, you know, why I would not get a job or something like this. But I think there was a slight bias, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it is true that some of my friends and Uh, yeah they say it themselves so someone let's say the international sort of english-speaking community they enjoy a certain kind of privilege right like they are not really forced to learn the you know the local language
2: Mm -hmm. whereas
0: you as a foreigner so everybody practices their english with with you and as soon as you reveal oh but you're you're from somewhere else um then they go like oh but you know you should be learning german it's like oh well yeah i am you know like i can switch to german but but that's you know at the end of the day I really like it because sometimes people they they mean well they're not not everybody is super biased or mm-hmm. you know super critical but um but yeah it's one of those experiences so I don't know whether Ben you are of course in a very special position uh, with the UN but if you've ever experienced anything like this that would be interesting to hear but I would imagine that probably yes. you didn't
1: <laughs> I did I did You actually, did very...
0: you did well it's share actually... it with us if you want to
1: <laughs> Yes absolutely it's very it's actually very motivating experience because the first name Vladimir
0: mm-hmm. is
1: Slavic, right?
0: And it sounds very Russian, right? I mean it yeah, is exactly yeah. It's not
1: yeah. It's, it's Slavic, you know, it could mm-hmm. be Croatian, it could be Slovenian, Polish, there'll be a W at the at the front of it, Czech Slovak. It's a Slavic right. name. Mm-hmm. But the perceptions because of probably Lenin and Putin or something, you know, they everybody really <laughs> think you are Russian. So yeah. you know as soon as you say Vladimir, you must be Russian. Right, that's one thing. And then, you know, when I was younger, because of the the invasion in '68 and mm-hmm. things, I was very unhappy about being called to be to be Russian.
2: Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I got mm-hmm. over.
1: I got over it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. but
1: you know, it's also many years passed since then. But uh, the other thing is that what right, I this is true. If you have a Slavic name or non-English name and you work in the English environment, you know, it's a, you need to put up more with the work than the native speakers. Right. Because the the prejudice, the prejudice is, and it exists, and I actually have it now myself. (laughs) Okay. okay. But, you know, because it's just the way it is. You know, if you see people with strange names, strange mean not English Mm -hmm. names, so that uh, the questions are... does he speak English? Can he work in a computer, on a computer, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all the questions that for the native speakers, nobody would ask. Because if right. somebody has an English name, automatically has to speak English, right? And then he's probably educated in a certain way, you know, in a certain schools. And so this is something what you know, that they know, mm-hmm. that they consider it automatically like a good guy or a good girl, if I may. Mm-hmm. Nice and, mm-hmm. right. and then if you don't have that, so you actually working in a foreign language. So it's a burden first because it's not your mother tongue so you need to make make up for it mm-hmm. and also you need to kind of prove yourself more mm-hmm. if you want to succeed in it so you know it might be annoying at the beginning but it's a big motivator it was for me a big motivator to prove myself oh totally do, it's I a great do, motivator yeah you know so uh i'm not compl- I'm, I'm stating the facts that's what it is but i don't uh fr- there was a frustration at a certain point when i realized that because i didn't expect it but i got over it relatively quickly and then uh, I just take it as a fact you know if you don't if you work in this environment where the English is the working language where if you live in the United States or you know in the UK or somewhere there where majority of people or most of the people everybody speaks english and you are not from that environment then you need to put up with it Mm -hmm. and if you cannot put up with it or you don't want to then you need to go back home
2: yeah yeah
1: because i I can go to prague and and i can speak czech there and i wouldn't be bothered you know with uh, somebody you know because i say okay i I want to be here but if you don't want to if you want to achieve something internationally then you need to live the life of the people who live there right Mm -hmm. i can live home czech speak czech yeah Mm no drink czech beer and and making the Czech jokes, mm-hmm. but if, if I want to live here, I need to drink American beer, and I'm kidding. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, completely. To drink yeah. American beer, I need to make English jokes, which I struggle with.
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, oh, English uh, jokes are good. Uh, <laughs> some, yeah.
0: I'm a big Monty Python fan, though. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's challenging, but I think motivating.
0: I think it is challenging and uh, it is also inspiring I would say to hear stories like yours and other guests uh, that we've had Uh, and I always find it you know I also don't want to talk about let's say the English speaking community or people who come from you know from native speakers who come from the anglophone environment that they never integrate or they never learn a vernacular or a Particular language, there are such. However, they are usually a minority. Mm-hmm. But there are great, great guests that I've had um, on Ex-Lunder, uh mm-hmm. Americans. You know who've mastered other languages, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, it's amazing. I always think it is. You know, respect to those who like, let's say, master Czech. Yeah. <laughs> with, coming from a non slavic background so that the language sounds is, like is, and with and, cho, with huh? <laughs> and it's like the whole flective structure i mean it's a it's a completely alien language so i would not want to generalize but what you're saying it's uh, it's not surprising though it is interesting that also it's such positions let's say like such high diplomatic positions mm-hmm. and international in the international environment this plays its role it was this another thing
1: would i learn Yes. Very quickly. There was another thing that I learned very quickly. When we were brought up back home, you know, uh, if you praise yourself, it's actually look bad, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. I know know, this feature.
1: It's for others. It's for others, you know, to praise you, not, not for yourself. You will never get a job anywhere, you know, in this competitive environment, because if you cannot say how good you are, nobody else will say it. That's one thing. But the other thing is that you never say you don't know something or you are not good at something. You know, I remember when I joined the tribunal, I was completely fluent in English. Mm -hmm. You know, by then I was completely fluent in English, but uh, they were supposed to be doing something. And I I said something which I remember forever. I said, you know, I think it'd be better if a colleague of mine would do it because my English is not as good as his. Right. So you say about yourself that you are not good in something. You know what happens after that? People listen to it. And they say, well, he's saying that himself. He's not, it must be true. I heard a number of times, Vlad's English is not good enough, right? Because I was saying that myself. And since that time, I just stopped doing it. And I was Mm -hmm. talking to a number of friends uh, doing my book promotion and something. They asked me about, you know, my experience with things. And I said, you know what? One thing, if you want to work abroad in the international community you stop saying that you don't know something. You don't lie that you know something. You don't admit something, unless you've put on spot. If somebody said, do you speak Chinese, all right? So you said, mm-hmm. no, I don't speak Chinese, okay, because I don't. But if if, if nobody asks you mm-hmm. in, these things, so you just don't come forward saying that you don't know something because people remember it. And if, if you say, and especially in this false things that, you know, you know that you are good at something, but you don't want to, you know, brag about yourself and you say well i'm not actually good at it no yeah. people listen to you and say well he's actually not good at it because he said himself mm-hmm. he's not good at it it was something completely different experience and back home because back home in my days when you when you say i am greatest thing in the world people look at you like he's like eh,
2: no, no you're probably not talking
1: yeah. About, yeah you know he's talking about himself he must be some you know crazy guy
2: mm-hmm. but
1: but this is true my true experience and competitive experience with the, with the applications
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you need to talk about yourself. If you yeah. don't know how to talk about yourself in a positive sense, you lose all the opportunities to get the job. And I'm sitting on the panels of interviews and I see the difference, cultural difference from the different parts of the world that, you know, Australians, Brits, you know, New Zealanders who are in this environment where the interviews are based on competitions you know, uh, competencies and competition about the job. So the competencies to the job, you need to speak up. You need to say, I did this and I did that and give examples. But there are countries where they are not used to it. And from, from that, they have a disadvantage mm-hmm. because they cannot speak about themselves. And um, there was something that I had to learn myself many, many years back that I said at the beginning of this, if you don't know how to portray yourself with the successes that you have in your life, nobody else is going to do it mm-hmm. and if you cannot do it you have no chance to get the job because and somebody else those, will most, get it yeah exactly so it's it's very different experience from my childhood and from my younger age back home in czechoslovakia what mm-hmm. i had to quickly adopt to this environment, but well, you have to say yes. I'm good at it.
0: Is this also something I would say typically American? Right? I mean, it is uh, the art to sell yourself. Would you say that huh? it is American, or would you say that it is needed in this international environment, especially?
1: Yeah, you know, the Americans are slightly different than than the rest of the, the bunch, but I don't think in this particular, <laughs> I don't think in this particular area. You know, I really because I guess because I'm sitting on the panels of interviews, I, I see it with the Brits and Australians particularly. You know, every every career movement they make, you know, in, in their life, it's a competency-based interviewing. So your professionalism, teamwork, you no, know, just name them, no no and they they have to present themselves in, in that, right? So they know how to go about it and you know, about presenting themselves. And they are most of them are very efficient in in this presentation and it's actually very good i'm not not it's not bad mouthing i think it's very good skill Mm -hmm. to be able to not to lie about that you know everything and you know you've done everything in the world Mm -hmm. but to to be able to say yes i have done this and these are the examples i have how i did it because if you don't know if you don't know how to present it then the people would know because if you don't tell them how they can figure out that you're actually good at what you are applying for so Mm -hmm. in that in that context You know, what you ask about the Americans, I I don't think that, you know, Americans are probably very similar to Russians, you know, because it's a big country, you know, Mm -hmm. very powerful, big country. So they are very proud of being Americans. Right. And then, so what probably you ask me, I think it's more comes to coming from the big country, Mm -hmm. powerful country Mm -hmm. that, that they think they run the world, but the the Brits were also running the world world at some stage, you Mm you know, before the Americans took over. And God knows who is going to be running the world in the future, but for the, for, the, for the time being, it's still kind of big polar, or maybe three polar, with the China now and Russia and the United States. Yeah. But but Americans are very proud people, but you know most of them are very nice people mm-hmm. as well, and um, very helpful. It's really easy living for a foreigner in the U.S. because they don't look at you as a foreigner. Mm-hmm. You know, like in Holland, we were Czechs, right? Okay. In 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 Vienna also. We were Czechs, you know, and I always laugh about that in Vienna they were saying we are coming from Eastern Europe.
2: Mm-hmm. And I was always
1: saying for you is Northwest.
2: Yes. You know? For you yes. guys
1: it's Northwest. You know it's it's Eastern Europe for for Dutch or for the even for Germans and for the Brits, right? Jo- in geography, it's yeah. Eastern Europe. We are not Eastern Europeans, we are Central Europeans. You know but no, that's the a topic we it-
0: we we've, we've had on Iceland a couple of guests. Yes, yeah. yes. It's so amazing. As a, as a fun of
1: it, for, as a fun of it i will go and get a rental car in vienna right
0: yeah. and i go
1: there i present my american driver's license you know the czech passport and they asked me so where are you going to go with the car and i said uh, i'll be here in austria and and said are you going to go to eastern europe and i <laughs> said no and uh, so i you going to go to to here? i said yes ah i said but for you it's north northwest <laughs> they just look at me you know, because it's not, you know, Osterreich is Eastern, right? Yeah? Yes, so yes. We are, technically, we are Northwest, you know, Prague is quite the Northwest from, from Vienna. Yeah, but, you know, it's 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 kind of fun thing, you know, to to, to catch them on this Eastern Europe thing. But uh, because it's political,
2: It's still political.
0: And I think that it is, I mean, talking about this with, let's say you or somebody from your generation, and even I was talking uh, about this with Václav, our honorary consul, then... Czech Honorary consul here in Switzerland. And he mentioned the same thing. And then um, I was just thinking for my generation. So I was born in the 80s, uh, uh, 1986. So for us, this was already a bit weird. And now imagine a 20-year-old YouTuber from Prague nowadays, you know, going places and, you know, him or her being called from Eastern Europe. They, these kids just don't get it. You know, they grew up in a completely different Mm -hmm. you know setting that is no longer they no longer recognize this whole political and historical Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sort of yeah geographically it doesn't make sense politically it no longer makes sense but uh, it is still sort of there you know and I don't I don't have an explanation for this Václav said it's still the journalists and teachers and people from the old generation keep teaching that to the younger generation which might Mm -hmm. be one of the possible explanations I don't know eastern europe for me means eastern religion and eastern mm-hmm. traditions and eastern mm-hmm. culture like it's nothing that you know we have in brno which is like 90 minutes away from vienna which is basically the same place yeah you're
1: still you're still northwest from we're vienna. still northwest
0: right <laughs> that's true okay well then let's go and let's talk about what you do and uh, a bit about your history and how you got to it. And um, this is going to be, I think, something very, very emotional, I would say. But I think it is necessary that people hear uh, what you witnessed and how that even happened. You know, how how was it possible that something like this happened? And of course, I'm talking about um, the Balkan War. Mm-hmm. And I was very small. I was a child. I was in primary school. So my memories are, yeah, not very mm. present, I would say. So over to you, please. Yeah, it's,
1: uh, it's not only for you, but it's for many other people, because I'm just lecturing now uh, different places here in the US, but also back home in Czechia and Slovakia. Whenever I have a time, I go there and do some lectures. And so uh, what is the first thing that you notice? This part of the history is not being taught in schools. Right? That is true. Yeah. No, it's not being taught. You know, it's a a war that happened just next door to us, literally next door to us. If you look at the globe, you know, it's just next door to us. It's only a couple of borders that you need to go southeast. People knew very little about it. And uh, that people here in the U.S. don't know much about it is one thing because it's just too far, you know, for them. But, you know, for us, it's kind of strange because millions of people go to former Yugoslavia, to Croatia, you know, to Serbia. Montenegro, mm-hmm. Slovenia for summer holidays,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they were going through this part of the uh, of the land, and they the burned houses and um, and uh, and destroyed things, and uh, they knew very little about what happened there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, it's the reality of it. When I when I was actually writing the book about it, I thought I will have a difficulty to market it in a way because. Nobody will be interested in it,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which was not true. And it was a very big surprise for me that uh, most of my lectures are attended by young people, Mm -hmm. which which is really, you know, I really enjoy that because they don't have a prejudice about it. They're listening and maybe arguing with you, but they don't have this prejudice of, of the people from the older generation where they know everything better. Mm -hmm. even though they don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, that was the first thing. People don't know anything about it, but there are groups of people who are actually interested in learning about it. But about how I got myself into it, it was, uh, I was working for Interpol and uh, I didn't like it. I'm probably too young for it. You know, I came from the the homicide investigations and and sort of violent crime, Mm -hmm. which was very dynamic Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: uh, I love it. And then I came to Interpol, which was very bureaucratic. You know, it, it is basically, a, I don't want to sort of play it down. It's a very important organization, but it's a very sophisticated post office, which connects, which connects the police forces globally to transfer and analyzing information about the crimes committed and about the assistance they need from the different countries. Like a Czech criminal will go to Germany to commit crime in Germany and runs back to Czech Republic, right? Mm-hmm. And so Germans cannot come to Czechia to, to arrest him and investigate him. So they need to get to the Czech police. So they go through Interpol.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or now Europol, but at the time, uh, Interpol. And so uh, it's, it's basically analytical work, that uh, communication that, you know, I was just too young for that at the time. And I was looking still for some action. I want to do something, policing, arresting criminals and bring them to justice. Opportunity came that I... I could join the UNPROFOR, 4 which was the United Nations Protection Force established by the UN to keep the peace in the former Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. So this is where I spent that one year uh, in Sarajevo, trying to, to protect the civilians of the United Nations in the middle of the war, which was mission impossible, which I didn't know when I was going there. And I, it was good that I didn't know because mm-hmm. had I known, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. But it was the best thing that happened to me professionally and personally to come from this nice Prague to right in the middle of the winter and war in the Balkans. A lot of personal, professional experience, but also personal experience about how you sort of change your views on things. What is more important in your life? You know, it's not always a broken telephone. You know, There are more important things that uh, that you need to take into consideration. So uh, that was my entry into this, you know, my dissatisfaction with the the work that I was doing at the time and the opportunity to work internationally for the United Nations. And then I got the job in The Hague as an investigator and then start investigating a crime committed in Croatia. Mm -hmm. And I I started to see the war from a different angle, Mm -hmm. you know, not by being in the middle of it, but looking into who was responsible for the war? And because how the prosecutor's office was established, I only saw one, one side of it. My suspects were the Serbs committed the crimes in Croatia and in Western Bosnia. Mm-hmm. While next team to me was investigating Croats committing crimes, you know, under Serbs, you know, in, in Croatia, for example. So you know, our experience is, is very sort of one-sided. You, you know the the big picture. But the professional experience was very one-sided because we were only interested in finding the crimes committed by the Serbs on the non serbs mm-hmm. in certain certain area. Mm-hmm. But we went to the deep depth of it. You know, 10 years, you know, you 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 know you do quite a bit of things, you know, from the exhumations of the mass graves, you know, to talking to the victims, you know, then later talking to the suspect and the organization of it, political. You know, it was very interesting professionally.
0: May I pause you there? Sorry. You just mentioned exhumation of the mass graves and talking to the victims. I listened to some of the interviews that you've given to Czech media about this. Can you, and do you want to? That's the, that's the question. Can you just describe to a person who has, who cannot imagine, you know, in wildest dreams, what this is about and how one feels, how one sleeps? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I think that what was kind of unique for us, the war in the Balkans, it was an invasion. You know, like the World War II, Nazi Germany attacked Europe and they invaded, right? So the enemies were Nazi German. In the Balkans, the war was a neighbor to neighbor. It Mm -hmm. was a war between the neighbors for most part, you know, for most part. There were no outsiders, you know. The Serbs were home in Croatia the same way like Croats were home in Croatia. There was more Croats in Croatia than the Serbs, so the Serbs were a minority, but it was in their country. And they were supported by the Serbs from Serbia, but it was still, you know, neighbor to neighbor. No, let's say Czechs or or, or Germans would Mm -hmm. would attack them. So it was a civil war where neighbors were killing neighbors. And war crime happens, atrocities happen, people were killed and were buried in the mass graves. And as an investigator, what you do, you need to have a certain elements to be able to to charge somebody with a crime.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: First, you know you need to have the victims.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: need to have witnesses. you need to have a suspect. You need to have evidence that supports your theory. So for us, because we didn't have access to those areas at the early days of the tribunal, we were going and talking to the families of the victims. People who were missing in action were civilians killed, you know, and, and the families thought maybe they were not killed. The families thought maybe they were in some camps somewhere in Serbia, mm-hmm. maybe in Kosovo, in the coal mines, and they just did not let them go. And the international community wasn't doing anything good about it to release them, to bring their lives back home. So they were quite bitter. About it, but then we came and we gave them a hope. All of a sudden, people came and and internationals came and started listening to their stories. So they were telling us what happened to the husband or or wife or son, uh, where they were seen for the last time, with the hope that one day somebody will knock on the door and those missing will come back home. Mm -hmm. Which was false hopes. Yeah, just from the logistical point of view to keep hundreds or maybe thousands of people somewhere in the camps, you know, without word being heard about it. It's a logistical nightmare. So we knew that these people were dead. We just didn't know where they were buried. And so in this particular case, the biggest case that we investigated, you know, in Eastern Slavonia, in Croatia, there was the people who were taken from the hospital, Vukovar hospital. They were transferred to a small place, which is called Yes. Army, actually, Yugoslav army, regular army, brought them from the hospital to that location, and then they handed them over to the local paramilitary and territorial defense, who murdered them overnight. And they killed them because there was a media, the fake. It's called now fake news. Yeah. The Serbian media, at the same time when they were transporting the people from the hospital, the same day the media in Belgrade were running story about about 40 Serbian children being murdered by these Croats. And it was on national television, on the radio. It then went to the print papers. Reuters picked the story without verification and, and broadcasted it globally. So those people who lost the battle, who lost the war, who were gathering in a hospital to be evacuated right those were croats mm-hmm. and the news basically was saying that some of those croats murdered 40 serbian children mm-hmm. so the group of the prisoners which were in that camp at this ofchara farm were murdered overnight by those paramilitaries and they were dumped in a mass grave was covered and they basically thought it will be forgotten right? And then we, we start investigating it. And and cut the long story short, eventually we got ourselves to that location with the international team and we managed to exhume the grave. There was a 200 people buried in that location. Mm. Plus, there's a 65 people still missing. There's probably, there was another grave somewhere.
0: So until which, today they're still missing. No,
1: still missing. Uh-huh. So uh, I was in charge on the Tribunal side of the exhumation, not, not the technical side. There was an NGO called uh, Physician for Human Rights, which is the American NGO, who actually were doing the, the, the technical work, the exhumation. But my role was uh, chief investigator, if you can call it. I was there for seven weeks and sort of taking care of the exhumation, doing eventually the press briefings and, and stuff like that, until we completed the exhumation. We transferred the bodies from that location to a mortuary in Zagreb where -hmm. the autopsies were being done by the PHR team. And then this is what the the thing is that, you know, you talk to the the, the families of the victims Mm -hmm. and then they had these false hopes that these people are still alive. So they were quite friendly to us because we were still in contact with them for a couple of years, you know, before the exhumation actually happened. And then when we announced the exhumation, then the whole atmosphere changed. They started to be quite hostile towards us. The fear that the truth might come. Not that this Jelko would come back home, but that maybe the dead body would be brought home. And then there was a quiet escalation of, of very unfriendly attitude towards us by these NGOs back in Croatia, the mothers of Bukovar and all the others, who were very friendly to us before.
2: Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden
1: it changed to quite Unfriendliness, I would call it. And then when we started exhumation, there was a silence, right? And then when we were going to the press briefings, and we found the first body, and then we next week we will say we found another 10 bodies or something. And then we had to start going back to, to the people after the autopsies and after the for the identification purposes. Because we all of a sudden had the body. So we had a story. We had the body of a victim. We need to find out how the person died, whether it was a natural cause, whether he was murdered, and then we need to identify him. And for the identification, you need a family, because the fact that somebody has ID card on him, it still doesn't mean that it's him, right, or her. It might be a jacket of somebody else. So you need to actually identify the body. Today, with the DNA, you know, it's very simple, but at the time, the DNA was at the very start. It was a very expensive exercise, so we need to do all the other possible means of identification, dental records, you know, and, and the broken bones, you know, and medical records. And then you actually have to bring the people to accept that this pile of bones is actually that jelko It's very emotional for the people, right? They were expecting to have his, the son or father to come home. And then all of a sudden a bunch of people, some of them were locals and some internationals as us, Mm. Bring them in and tell them there's a pile of clothing and a pile of bones. And do you recognize the clothing? Was it your son or your father? Or there was a watch, right? Or a ring or something. And then do you accept that this is actually your son?
2: Mm.
1: And some people accepted it. Some people asked for the DNA. And there were cases that people, even after the DNA, refuse to accept that that pile of bones is actually the son or, or father. So there's a lot of emotions in it. It's, it's much worse from the side of the investigators than to be in the mass grave because the, the mm-hmm. mass grave, mm-hmm. it's, it's, there's a stench of the decomposition, you know, the flies and, and the heat and all. Of, it's unpleasant, but there are no emotions. You know, it's, it's a, probably sounds bad, but it's material, the human
0: yeah at that time yeah, yeah.
1: it's gone you know the, the oh. life is gone so you're dealing with the with the sort of no matter how bad it sounds you're dealing with the material with the bones and and, and clothing and decomposition and, and and stuff like that but when you go to the mortuary when you bring the people then you deal with the emotions of those people who trusted you
2: mm-hmm. believe
1: that you bring them their loved ones back. And instead of the loved ones, you bring them a pile of bones. It was it was very emotional.
0: I don't think I can imagine anything like that. I don't think many people can.
2: Yeah,
1: it was it was difficult. Uh, you, know, you, you approach it professionally, of course. You know, of you course, can, you can't you can't you can't take any sort of uh, as soon as you start to be involved emotionally in it, you lose the perspective. Of course. Yeah, you know? but it is difficult. It, as I said it's more difficult at the mortuary with the victims than the exhumation at the mass grave.
0: You wrote a book about it, The Investigator. Of course, there are many, many other stories. Is there anything particular that you'd like to add to this, what you've just shared with me and with us? Because oh. it is, um, I don't really know how to continue. Like, it is very, very emotional.
1: The, the book was, I'll tell you a bit of how the book came came to being.
0: Was it also a bit of a therapy for you?
1: Yes, to some extent. Yes, yes. Mm, yes. I, I thought extent, that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: there was something else that I did, you know, that uh, together with my colleagues that I'm very proud of. It was the arrest of the first war criminal, uh, Slavko Dokmanović. I have to give a little bit of context of it. Yes, The please. tribunal was working in a certain specific environment. There was a previous, there were two tribunals before the ICTY. It was the Nuremberg. And Tokyo tribunals after the end of the World War II, where the international community was prosecuting the war criminals from the, for the Nazi Germany and from Japan, right? And in that, the tribunals were established after the conflict, where the Allied forces control the environment. So they basically could brought to justice whoever they wanted. You know, they arrested the German Nazis, uh, the Japanese, and then they go to witnesses, and, and they went to the crime scenes the concentration camps because it was all at, at the palm of their hands because they, were, they won the war.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: tribunal was established during the time when the war was still ongoing and the people we were investigating were still in power. Mm-hmm. Now, they had no interest in cooperating with us, right? On contrary, they, they were doing everything that we wouldn't be able to operate on all sides, of the conflict. There's no difference. You know, some, some were better than others, but uh, there was no interest in cooperating with us. And then we were indicting people for the crimes committed in the former Yugoslavia. There was nobody in a prison. And when the prosecutor wanted to arrest somebody, there were excuses why it couldn't be done. So the second prosecutor, everybody think it was the first, but actually second, Justice Goldstone came with the idea that there will be uh, secret indictments which will not be made public so that the investigators will be able to come closer to those people. They would know they were indicted. So it will give us opportunity to arrest them, right? Mm-hmm. But still nobody got arrested. Then based on those secret indictments, one of our inditees, I came across the information where he lived. He was hiding in Serbia and a colleague of mine who was working in, in the other team, the, the team which investigated the Kurds, for their crimes against the Serbs, met with this suspect of ours without knowing that he is actually indicted by us because the information was secret even within the office of the prosecutor. And I met with her over coffee and she she told me about meeting this, this guy. And I said, well, do you have a contact details for him? I said, yes, I've got a telephone and an address. So I was talking to my colleagues, my especially the lawyer in our team, this Clint Williamson, and I told him, listen, we could actually try to arrest him by pretending that we will be investigating the crimes committed by uh, Croats on the Serbs. Mm
2: -hmm. And we
1: will approach him as a witness, try to get him to come to the part of Croatia, which was controlled by the UN, to show us the places where the crimes committed by Croats on the Serbs took place. And we will use it as a pretext for arresting him and bringing him before. It's, It's a long story. I will cut it short. We actually succeeded in it. We arrested him and brought him to justice, to The Hague, to prove the world that if they are not going to cooperate with us, we will do it ourselves, including NATO at the time, because NATO was saying their mission in Bosnia-Herzegovina was implement the Dayton agreement, it was I-4, and stabilize the situation, which was S-4. So there were two important missions that sort of brought Bosnia-Herzegovina into peace, after the Dayton Agreement, but the NATO was saying if we start arresting the war criminals, the population will turn against us, which mm-hmm. will cripple the mission. And we and the prosecutor was arguing you are under obligation to do it. And they were saying no, it's too dangerous. You know we don't want to sort of put our troops. And then us bunch of crazies went actually and affected the arrest and, and arrested the guy. Nobody was injured. Nobody was killed. And we brought him to The Hague, which was a big card for the prosecutor. Then there was a different prosecutor. It was a Justice Arbor of Canada who actually went to NATO and said, look, my people could do it. Why cannot you do it? And after that, two weeks later, NATO started with the arrest of the war criminals in Bosnia. So it was very important thing what we achieved. And when I was writing the book initially, I thought, I will write about it, about this Operation Little Flower, which, which was the codename for, for the arrest. But when I was writing it and I'm kind of adding to it other things because I was working on other projects. So the, the book is broader than just the Operation Little Flower. And it was expanding, expanding. I was putting pictures into it. So, And I didn't have a publisher. I was writing it for, after I got a permission from the UN to write the book, I still didn't have a publisher for it. And I was struggling, whether I should write it in English or I should write it in Czech. Eventually I decided to write it in Czech and I was always joking about it. Why? I said, if I make a fool of myself, 10 millions of people is better than 300 millions or billion of people that speak English. Right.
0: <laughs> <So> well,
1: <laughs> I was always joking about it. I said, you know, if I, if I'm supposed to make a fool of myself, so let's do it back home in the backyard. Right. Mm. So, so I offered um, the book, yeah. I offered the book you know, to the publisher and, uh, And they they said they will publish it. And it's a best-selling book now. It's, uh, I think, fifth uh, reprint of it. And now they are doing the film, uh, not uh, active film. It's a documentary. It's it's called Road Movie, which was supposed to be done already this year, but the COVID pushed it. So I'm supposed to travel now uh, in March to Bosnia and and to Croatia to continue shooting the the documentary. And uh, it was published in in English, Mm -hmm. which was a major achievement because as a foreigner to publish a book, not self-published book, but mm-hmm. the published book with respected company in the US. It's a it's a it's an achievement. And it was published by the University of Nebraska Press, which mm-hmm. is a university publisher, which I was very proud of. And now it looks as like going to be published in Croatia. So
0: the world needs to know.
1: Yep. So it is uh, it is very sort of rewarding and actually opened the door for me to do lectures. Per- talking to the students and stuff like that. And then I got more requests for lecture and that actually I can do because I work, you know, I do it. This is, this is not money-making business mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. So I, I earning, I do it all pro bono.
0: Mm-hmm. I cannot
1: earn money, you know, through lecturing, but I do it because I really enjoy it.
0: How do students react? My last question to those stories. And of course, the one that you shared with me now is one of millions.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's interesting uh, that it's very similar to like Czechia or Slovakia or the US. Those people who come to those lectures, they are obviously interested in those in those stories, right? I'm sure that there are many people who are not interested. Of course. But if somebody actually come to, to the lecture about something like that, they have some interest in it. And then it's very positive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very positive. And a lot of questions are asked and sometimes difficult questions. I'll tell you one, for example... And I remember that forever. I was in Nebraska doing the lecture at the university. And uh, because I do it pro bono, I would joke. Because I do it pro bono. So mm-hmm. whenever I agree to go somewhere, after one, I do two or three or four because it's free, right? Of so course, yeah. As soon as, say, as soon as I say it's pro bono, then I do more than one. And I, I don't mind, actually, I enjoy it. So I was doing a number of presentations in, in Nebraska at the university. And the last, last was a group of people, maybe maybe 80 students, and when uh, I walked in, uh, in the room, there was the guy standing who was doing that sign language, you know, for people who don't hear. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that there was a guy, some or a lady somewhere in, in the audience who doesn't uh, hear, they have a problem mm-hmm. with the hearing. So I do the, the lecture. And then at the end, uh, they ask questions. And then I said, okay, no more questions. Okay, thank you very much. And then they start leaving and the guy comes to me said, you know, I have a student here who couldn't ask questions because he's got a problem with the hearing and with talking. Would you have a time for him? I said, of course, I would have a time for him. So there's this small African-American boy with a lot of problems, physical, a lot of problems. You saw it on him. And he had the book in his hand, my book in his hand.
2: Mm-hmm. And he
1: comes to me and asks through him whether he can ask questions. And I said, yes, please. And he asked me a question. I understand for what you're saying you know, that you looked the victims how they felt about what was happening to them I said yes you know blah blah as as I told you yes you know we listen to them you know we cannot take the emotions but you know we are interested in this from the human point of view Mm -hmm. and he asked me have you ever asked yourself how the families of the suspect felt and it completely you know uh, got me because it never crossed my mind And I was just looking at him, African American boy in middle of the US, Nebraska is like in the middle of Norway. Sorry, but it's just, you know, not (laughs) yes, you know. And then he's got all kind of human problems with him because he can't, you know, he cannot sort of hear and he couldn't speak much. He's got also the body, you know, affected by some some illness. And he actually read the book Mm -hmm. and came with a question that nobody else asked me everybody asking me, how about the victims, how they felt? And I told him, I said, you know, you are the first one who asked you asking me the question. And give me a few minutes, actually, I had to come up with the answer. Mm-hmm. And then I answered to him. And he said, Oh, thank you very much. You know, and then and then he left. I just look at that myself. I said, look at this, people with such problems in life, you know, take time mm-hmm. to read, you know, what I wrote about the war in the middle of for them, middle of mm-hmm. nowhere, mm-hmm. you know, from Nebraska to Yugoslavia, it's, it's quite a bit. And then, it was just amazing experience for me. Am- amazing question.
0: It is you know? because how about the families, about the families, of, the families of the suspect? Did they know? Yes. In case they knew, did they agree? Yep. Yeah. It is. Ah, terrible. Anyway. Yeah.
1: That's it about it.
0: Vladimir, I thank you so much for your honesty, for your time, and for this great story that you've shared with me and with my audience. And I don't have that many words because um, I'm thinking back about those interviews that I listened to in Czech um, a couple of years ago that you that you gave to certain Czech media. And uh, so I've known some of those stories that you've shared. This was new. And I don't know if you have anything to add.
1: No, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Size of the audience is not that important. I think important what the people are interested in listening to it. I think that uh, this matters more than how many listeners you would have. I, of course, I wish you that you know the audience is is huge, and and because you are doing that because you think is important. Mm-hmm. But the size is not always what matters. I think the, the interest of the people is critical. And if if one person learns something out of it, you know, for the future, that for example, it can happen to all of us. That the history fake
0: repeats itself,
1: and the fake news is dangerous thing. You know, look at today. They they sort of feed us know with the information which is unchecked especially Mm. the internet you know Mm. everybody can write just anything in there you have these bubbles of not necessarily good people who feeding you know the audience with the lies and then people often believe it because they are too lazy or not prepared or they don't know how to go to the sources and check on it and then I saw how the fake news caused a murder of hundreds of people. Mm. And it happened, it happened, you know, in 1990s, but it can happen to us. And, uh, and actually it does happen
2: mm.
1: that, that people listen or read something without verification and then believe that this is true. And I think if my story of, of the war in the Balkans can, can make people just think about double checking on the information mm-hmm. before they believe that actually something happened, they verify it somehow. I think that I achieve something in it again thank you very much for the invitation and all the very best to you
0: thank you very much you're doing a great job and especially with lecturing and uh, with writing and promoting your book so it is the investigator by Vladimir Zuro and I thank you very much and uh, wish you a good weekend then in New York City thanks bye
2: thank you bye